What if you could design the U.S. green card system, determine who gets permanent residence in the United States? What factors would you look for in green card candidates? Would family connections to America be important, or would you only care about the applicant's resume? Maybe a combination of multiple factors. Immigration systems are not easy things to design, and perhaps that's why Congress doesn't update ours very often. That said, this week the administration proposed changes to our immigration system, including an emphasis on merit-based immigration. Merit-based immigration systems are not new, and in fact, a number of countries have implemented some form of system that awards points to certain characteristics that each respective country has deemed important for a permanent resident to have. But such point-based systems have never been implemented in the United States. Today is the first of two episodes that we're going to look at permanent residents. We'll be looking at merit-based immigration today with Cornell Law Professor and globally renowned immigration expert Stephen Yale-Lair. He recently received a major grant to look at merit-based systems globally and to determine what the future of the American green card system could be. Join us today as we look at merit-based immigration. This is the Everyday Immigration Podcast. I'm David Wilkes. I'm lucky today to be here with the illustrious Stephen Yale Lair, who is a Cornell Law Professor uh, of Counsel here at Miller Mayer. Been on TV all over the place. You've been on MSNBC, Fox, CNN, I think. You've been quoted in every newspaper I can think of. So it's, it's a great honor to have Steve here. Uh, Steve, why don't you say hello? Glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. The first question I always ask every guest when they come on is, how has immigration impacted your life? And that can be professionally, that can be personally, that can be in your family history. Uh, how, how, how has immigration impacted you? Well, I didn't have any direct immigration experience before graduating from law school. They didn't teach immigration law back in the dark ages when I went to law <laughs> school at Cornell Law School. Uh, go Big Red. Uh, but when I started practicing after clerking for a federal judge, I did international law and there was some immigration cases that came by and I got interested in immigration law because you're dealing with real people. And if you do a good job, you know, you get a green card or naturalization for them at the end. And I thought it was a fascinating area and one that could be developed. So when my wife and I moved back to Ithaca, uh, both started teaching at Cornell Law School, their first immigration law class, as well as started the immigration practice here at what now is Miller Mayer. And we've just had a fascinating run over the last 30 years. We've built the practice up, so we've got nine attorneys and 15 paralegals, and we have lots of interesting cases. It's hard to pick one particular case that is more important than other, because for every client, their case is the most important. Sure. I think that from a personal perspective, uh, one of the most interesting cases I've worked on uh, concerns a person from the Dominican Republic named Danel Padilla Peralta, who was an undocumented student at Princeton when Princeton reached out to me and said, this person, Danel, just won a fellowship to Oxford for two years, similar to a Rhodes Scholarship. But because he's undocumented, you know, if he leaves, he may not be able to return. So they asked me to help out and determine if we could come up with some kind of strategy to persuade the immigration authorities that he should be allowed back into the United States. 
And to make a long story short, uh, it was a very complex case uh, involved Congress as well as the administrative agencies, as well as public opinion and uh, front page story in the Wall Street Journal. But ultimately, uh, Danelle was able to go to England for two years and be able to return. And now he's married to a U.S. citizen and is a finishing up his green card process. So uh, oh, wow. that was definitely an interesting and fulfilling success story. Oh, that's great. So, I mean, that sort of hits a lot of these issues that, you know, we're, we're really aiming to talk about, you know, something as simple as being able to take advantage of a, of a fellowship, you know, to, to you and I, you might think, oh, that's just simple. We'll be able to go to England for a few months or a couple of years or whatever it is. And it shouldn't be an issue. But these, these international borders, uh, depending on how you came to be a on one side of them can really impact, you know, very, what you think are very simple things, right? Mm-hmm. And, and even mm-hmm. just, you know, being able to take advantage of your successes. Mm-hmm. It is, and it's very hard because immigration is complex and many people don't know that they violated the law or the immigration mm-hmm. authorities erroneously think they may have violated the law or are not uh, subject to be able to come into the United States um, based on discretionary grounds. And right. so immigration has been called the second most complex area of law, second only to tax law. And I can certainly understand why, because you're dealing with humans, you're dealing with a huge system. 10 million people a year come to the United States on some kind of temporary visa. Another million people or so each year get green cards. And so how do you devise a system that is fair but also, you know, able to process that many people at a time. It's hard for any system in the world to do it. And you're going to hear a lot of critiques about the U.S. immigration system, Mm -hmm. but we should also recognize it is the biggest immigration system in the world. And I have sympathy for any immigration officer trying to devise a system that works for everyone. You know, we we talked about that, that tension that exists in immigration where you have to deal with the fact that you, as an American government, you are trying to protect U.S. workers and trying to make sure that that, you know, jobs market remains stable. But at the same time, you have to be open to new ideas and innovation. And, you know, you never know who the next Einstein is or even Irving Berlin, right? Mm -hmm. You never know who that's going to be that's going to bring this new sort of uh, scientific or cultural element that's really going to augment the the country. And part of the problem with our immigration system is that it's always been controversial in Congress. It's hard to get bipartisan consensus on reforming our immigration system. The last time we reformed our legal immigration system was in 1990, 29 years Mm -hmm. ago. And the world has changed considerably since then. It's certainly a lot more globally competitive. Every country is trying to get the best and the brightest to come to their own country. Um, but we really have not changed our immigration system. And so I think we're losing out on talent. And that's not to denigrate people who immigrate based on family characteristics or the asylum seekers who, once they are, are here, are able to contribute to the society. But um, I think that particularly when we talk about trying to get talented people to come to the United States, we have a lot of work to do. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be impossible until 2021 or so because of the politics of immigration to even attempt to reform our legal immigration system. 
Well, speaking of reform, you have a new project that's very exciting having to do with potential possibilities with immigration reform, right? So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Other countries have what they call merit-based or a points-based system to select some immigrants. And I wrote a book back in 1996 with a co-author, Dimitri Papadimitrios, about whether the United States should adopt a point system that didn't get anywhere. Um, but now I've got funding to research that issue again as well. And so I and a postdoc that I'm in the process of hiring are going to research how other countries like Canada and Australia and Japan and New Zealand and England uh, select some immigrants based on characteristics that they think will help their economy and culture, et cetera. And then based on that, we'll see if we can come up with some recommendations for a similar system in the United States. The Trump administration has proposed a merit-based system, um, but I think that we can do better. And it's going to be complicated because you're dealing with humans and you don't know when someone is 10 years old, like Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo was when he immigrated based on a family type of visa, whether he's a person who's going to make a real economic contribution uh, 20 years later after he graduates from Stanford. So I don't want a point system to be the only way that we select immigrants to the United States. But I think it could be one additional or new way to consider selecting some immigrants to the United States that could help us remain globally competitive. So uh, you mentioned that there's other countries that have tried this. Are there any notable cases that uh, you're, you're particularly interested in? Uh, Canada and Australia are sort of the two leading examples of a points-based system. They've had theirs the longest. They've done research on, you know, what works. They've been able to tinker with their systems to fine-tune them so that if they need skilled nurses one year, they're able to increase the number of points for Plus that. They're very flexible. They're very flexible. And that's another problem that I think we're going to have in the United States is that in Canada and Australia, the parliaments in those countries have delegated more authority to the immigration ministry so that mm. they can make those changes administratively without having to go back to their parliaments for approval. Here in the United States, Congress typically has had more control over the immigration function and has not been willing so far to delegate more ministerial authority to the immigration agencies to fine-tune our immigration system. So they've been locked in concrete in what we call statutes or laws, and it can take a long time for Congress then to amend those laws. So that I think that any proposal that I might put forth, I think is going to run into that kind of problem, unless Congress can be persuaded to give more flexibility and more power to the immigration agencies. But in Canada and Australia, in particular, because they've had their systems for a long time, they've been able to fine tune them and they've been able to actually do some studies that show that it has helped um, have immigrants be more successful. And hmm. we have to have a philosophical discussion about what is success, you know, what kind of immigrant is good, quote unquote, to the United States. But I think that if we can agree on those philosophical determinations, then I think we have a chance at making our immigration system in the United States even better than it is today. Wow. So uh, with, with respect to these systems, you know, what, what do they look like? Are they giving a certain number of points for having a degree or for speaking a language or, or, or what are the types of things that, that these points are awarded for? It varies from country to country. In the old days, say 20 years ago, it was much more 
uh, objective, such as, you know, do you have a certain kind of degree? Do you able to speak the language of the country, et cetera? These days, more and more point systems uh, include other kinds of variables or factors such as do you already have family members in the United in your, in the particular country to which you're immigrating do you have an employer sponsored job already lined up so you need to think about any immigration system is what is going to make an immigrant successful how are they going to assimilate into a new land and so having family already there or having a job already lined up there can be important factors. And so today's point systems are much more multivariable in that regard. They don't look just at education or language ability. And that makes it more complicated, but I think it ultimately, at least for Canada and Australia, has proven so far to be also more successful. Well, that seems to be a trend in, in just law generally. You know, there'll be a proposal to try to make something more objective. And then as time goes on, it, it sort of gets nuanced into a more subjective analysis. At least that seems to be the, even in our own employment-based rules, you know, if you look, for example, at, um, you know, what, the extraordinary ability green card and how there's particular factors that if you meet those factors, you know, you're supposed to get a green card. Um, but as time has gone on, there's a famous decision called a, the Kazarian decision, which created this extra step that not only do you have to meet these factors or, and show that, for example, you have X number of articles that you've reviewed the work of others and that you've, uh, you know, won certain awards, you have to, in addition, show that you did so in an extraordinary fashion, that it shows that you are someone that's extraordinary. So we've gone from this very objective, you know, meet these this checklist and you're in, to a more subjective well, let's look at how you did it. And did, did you really cross that or jump over that hurdle, you know, with grace, I guess you could say. And that makes sense because, again, we're dealing with people and people cannot be characterized in little boxes and either you're in or you're out. It's not binary. Similarly, for example, you know, people who get selected on employment characteristics bring family to the United States and people who come to the United States based on family-based green cards obviously are going to work. So it's not just one or the other. And so we're always going to have these kinds of debates as to, for example, what is extraordinary and is somebody with two master's degrees better or than someone with one PhD? Mm. What if the master's degrees are from prestigious you know, universities, but the one PhD is from an institution that's not as prestigious? So it's hard to measure extraordinariness. And you you can go down the road of objectivity, but you're always going to run into the unique characteristics of an individual, and they're going to argue that, no, look at me as a person, not just because I checked off three factors out of 10. So that's going to be difficult for any system, and no system's going to be perfect. The question is, how do you build flexibility into a system so that an adjudicator can take those factors into account, but exercise that discretion in a, in a fair way, uh, not penalize people if they don't fit squarely in the box? And importantly, how do you do that so that the system is still efficient? You don't want people to have to wait six years for a decision before, because it's so backlogged. So balancing the need for uh, quick decisions, but also fair decisions is a tough one for any immigration system.
So uh, this is going to be housed at Cornell Law School. What will be sort of the day to day? Will you be will you be traveling to some of these countries? Will you be or, or, or what will be the day to day research? Most of it will be uh, Skype or email interviews okay. with immigration officials. Some countries like Australia have their data about the immigrants and the factors easily accessible on their website. So we can download the data from Ithaca, New York and run quantitative analysis on it. Um, so it'll be a, a mix of quantitative and qualitative assessment. And I, then I think the hard part will be, well, that worked in those countries. Will something similar work in the United States? And I think I'm probably going to propose that we start small, mm -hmm. um, maybe like 50,000 green cards a year, which sounds like a lot. But we currently accept about a million people a year uh, for green cards. And so 50,000 is not even, you know, 10 percent. Um, and play around with it for a couple of years uh, and then see how we might improve upon it. But I think it's something that has worked for other countries and if done properly could also work for the United States. Now, now some have asked that this merit-based system replace the current diversity lottery system. Is Would you be suggesting uh, that we raise the number of green cards, which I think every immigration lawyer would be on board for, <laughs> or, or would you take a more, I guess it's too early to say because you're, you're going to be doing the research right now. Yes, right now we're just doing the research. I think that's a political decision. Right. You now, should any point system take away from some other categories? So the Trump administration proposal said, yes, we'll have more employment-based at the expense of family-based. Um, I think we clearly can accept more immigrants if they're properly selected. And so I would not necessarily recommend that we take away other current kinds of green cards, but we suggest that a point system be a new stream, as we call it. We've got family-based stream, we've got employment-based stream, we've got humanitarian-based stream, refugees and asylees, and we have a diversity stream. And maybe a points-based system could be an additional stream to consider how uh, to select certain immigrants to come to the United States. Just, I guess, more generally, uh, what are you paying attention to right now in immigration? What is, uh, what's sort of on your radar? Well, I think everything. Immigration <laughs> is a hot topic right now. Um, asylum uh, is a hot topic in this administration. I'm on the Asylum Committee for the American Immigration Lawyers Association, so we're certainly monitoring the current administration's efforts to restrict asylum and figuring out what um, needs to be done to comply with international law and U.S. law in that regard. But, you know, this administration has also now proposed some changes to our legal immigration system. So I'm also looking at that. I used to chair the Business Immigration Committee for the American Immigration Lawyers Association as well. So I've had a longstanding interest in both um, every aspect of immigration, because I also write a 21-volume immigration law treatise. But I'd say my a very two helpful treatise, I might <laughs> add. But... Uh, uh, right now, I seem to be focusing on both on asylum and business issues, or as my wife says, I go from A to B, <laughs> not from A to Z, just asylum to business and back again. So I think those are the things that are consuming me most right now. I certainly follow uh, the media every day in terms of new research, new news articles, what's going on in Congress. I think that, unfortunately, immigration has gotten more politicized than ever. So it makes it harder than ever to come up with a bipartisan consensus on reforming any aspect of our immigration system. 
I think back to even just 2013, uh, U.S. Senate had a bipartisan group of eight senators, four Democrats, four Republicans, who came up with a massive 1,200-page bill to reform all aspects of our immigration system. That passed the Senate very comfortably. I think it was 68 to 31 or something like that. Um, but then it died in the House of Representatives. Now, unfortunately, immigration is sort of so controversial that anything the Republicans propose, the Democrats are likely to op oppose knee-jerk-wise. Uh, and similarly, if the Democrats want to propose something, the Republicans are going to do it. So I think it's harder than ever to get immigration through Congress. And I don't know that that's going to improve much, even if we got a different Congress and a different president in 2020. But you have to remain hopeful. Immigration is too important to ignore. At some point, we're going to have an immigration reform bill that does get enacted. And the question is, is it going to be carefully and well thought out or is it just going to be slapped together? And I hope that my research will convince at least some congressional staffers and members of Congress to think about um, one aspect of it carefully. I appreciate your time today. Is there anything you want to plug before, uh, before we wrap up today? No, I think that every person in the United States uh, has some interest in immigration, whether they're immigrant themselves, married to an immigrant, employ an immigrant. And I think it's important for people to stay aware of immigration. Uh, immigrants are an important reason why this country has been successful. There is something about immigrants and their drive that makes them come to the United States that really has helped the United States be a success. And I think that aspect, that entrepreneurial uh, aspect of an immigrant is something that you can't measure, but is really important. I think lots of people around the country face problems, but they don't have that drive to come to another country. And so I think we continue to need to be welcoming toward immigrants. We need to vet them carefully. Um, and we have been doing that for over 100 years. It's not nothing new that we're doing. But I think that if we can build on our current success, we can have more immigrants come and still provide enough jobs for U.S. workers. And so it'll be a win-win for everyone. Stephen Yellair, it's always a privilege. Thanks for coming on today. I enjoyed it. Everyday Immigration is a production of Lee & So Productions in conjunction with Frosted Lens Entertainment. It's hosted by me, David Wilkes. Special thanks to Miller Mayer for letting us record in their offices and making their staff available to us. As I am an attorney, I should tell you that portions of this podcast include attorney advertising under New York law, and prior results don't guarantee a similar outcome. In addition, this podcast is not intended to be legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship between its hosts or guests and its listeners. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a review on whatever platform you use. You can also connect through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find us online at leonceoproductions.com. That's L-I-O-N-C-E-A-U productions.com. We'll be back with another episode soon, and we'll see you then. One last thing. If you email podcast at millermayer.com, that's podcast at M-I-L-L-E-R-M-A-Y-E-R.com, you'll get a 10% discount on any consultation you schedule with them.